From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. This is The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk TNT Radio. G'day, g'day. Welcome to the program on what will be, and I can guarantee this, a very, very busy week on the news front. Um, We'll be unpacking developments, of course, in the Middle East. You've heard what the president has said. There'll be further attacks on the Iran-backed terrorist group that killed those three United States soldiers. And uh, there's lots happening in terms of energy. There's a major renewables rally going on as well and a stack occurring on the presidential race. So a busy week ahead. But it's the presidential scorecard I do want to get to first up in the program, and that is courtesy of NBC. Now, this tells us so much about why Joe Biden is in massive trouble. And I'll take you to Texas, too where one of the biggest issues to emerge from the NBC polling is border control. And uh, over the weekend, take our border back convoy rally assembled in a little town right next to the border in Texas. They converged together with 15 state governors who were supporting their move to protest against what the Biden administration was doing and keeping borders open across the southern border area. This is a red hot issue. And it's interesting and coincidental that those who formed this convoy over the weekend were talking about exactly what has emerged from the NBC poll as a real government-changing policy, a real government-changing issue, this one. My special guest today is a climate science guru and another who's not fooled by the virtue-signalling evangelism. Steve Gorham is Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of four books on energy, climate change and sustainable development. His new book is called Green Breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure. He's predicted it, and I think he is spot on. We'll be discussing the contents of that new book today on the program, but do not miss what he has to say. Do not miss it. Now, the most telegraphed attack, I guess, from the United States since post 9-11 happened over the weekend as well. Former Army Intelligence Officer and anti-terror expert Shane Healy, We'll analyse what damage has been done uh, and how much Hamas is rebuilding in certain sections of Gaza. In the northern part of Gaza, police and government workers are back on the job. You heard correctly uh, a very unconvincing series of narratives from Israel late last week when they said they'd neutralised Hamas in Gaza. That's not according to some reports. We'll get to that. From down under today, we'll be hearing from two MPs from two different states of Australia, Mark Latham from New South Wales and Renee Heath from Victoria. We'll be talking about the impact of the Prime Minister's tax cuts on the news poll, which was released today, and it doesn't seem he's getting any juice out of it. It sounds like as if he's broken a promise for nothing And I'll go through the numbers in just a short while. Uh, We'll also be talking about uh, how the Liberal Party is imploding on videotape. There's um, a series of, I guess they're mini documentary episodes that are um, airing on the ABC at the moment. And boy, oh boy, it takes a look at this 
um, vortex between <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison and others in the Liberal Party and how they got through the last six years uh, very shakily and how there's no love lost between some of these key Liberal leaders. We'll talk about that. There's an Aboriginal advisor who's taking front page billing in Melbourne today because he is telling Victorians that the Indigenous cultural laws are being railroaded by Indigenous criminal gangs. Very interesting story, and it's not often that those within the Indigenous community come out to take down one of their own. And more drug testing in a very pro-drug regime, as is Victoria. So don't miss that pair. Latham and also Heath coming up, and they're both not afraid to call it as it is, so we'll get to them. And we've hopefully got you, because although you can jump on our chat box and have your say via tntradio.live, and you can do so right now, as some have already elected to do. Um, you get treated like a VIP when you jump on our talkback lines, so you're most invited to do so. From the United States and Canada, you can pick up the telephone now and dial this number, one 201 Have your say. Don't leave it to someone else. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, it is 1-800-670-310. Don't leave it to others because at the end of the day, I bet you are not happy with what you're hearing. So you may as well put it on the table and set the agenda if you like. It doesn't have to be anything that we have covered, but let's get on with it. You with Chris Smith broadcasting live from Sydney, Australia on the Global News Talk Network. It's TNT. Going 360 on the headlines. It's really well-balanced conversation. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, we'll get an assessment, as I say, on what has occurred in the Middle East and this crisis, which seems to be escalating, and the staggering US retaliation. Uh, I'll get to that in about 30 minutes' time. But some fresh polling has emerged today in the United States, which not only scorecards the race for the White House, but it tells us a hell of a lot about how America may react if Donald Trump is convicted of any of these major indictments. And added to all of that, it pinpoints a particular issue of concern for Joe Biden that I don't think he can get out of. Now, the poll comes, as I say, from NBC, and there's one thing you can say about current mainstream polling. It is not producing the kind of results that those from mainstream media are enjoying. So you could probably say they're as accurate as they have ever been. Um, despite not having any real opposition to his nomination, President Joe Biden has a very dissatisfied electorate on his hands. This is nine months out, bear in mind. He faces re-election in nine months' time and Biden trails Trump on both major policy and personal comparisons, including by more than 20 points on which candidate would handle the economy better. 20 points on the economy alone. Now, I'll repeat the old campaign adage, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It, um, I think, is relevant, certainly for the United States, given the fact that they are suffering from a cost of living crisis. It is the economy, stupid. And it always is. Sometimes an election might be swayed by other issues, but right now, it is the economy, stupid. And you watch this sentiment dictate where the polls go and what happens in November, because in the middle of a cost of living crisis, 
it counts. Now, the NBC poll also shows Trump holding a 16-point advantage, not six, 16 points over Biden on being competent and efficient and effective. As I said last week in one of my editorials, Americans have to decide whether they think Biden can withstand mentally and physically at his age another four years in power. And that, to me, is one of his great undoings. Um, this particular 16-point advantage on the score of effective and competent is a complete reversal from 2020. So if he could rely on being effective, more effective than Donald Trump, and got over the line in 2020, well, he's not going to be able to rely on it at least nine months out. 16-point difference. Biden held a clear advantage on this last time round, so that's telling. And Biden's approval rating has declined to the lowest level of his presidency in NBC News polling to 37%, while fewer than three in 10 voters approve of his handling of the Israeli-Hamas war. Now, that to me is somewhat of a surprise. You may be super critical of Israel, but to Biden's credit, he has stood in front of Israel over the way they have carpet bombed most of the uh, Gaza Strip. And I say that in a generic term, not strategic. Altogether, Trump leads Biden by five points among registered voters in a hypothetical general election matchup. So 47% to 42. But could a conviction against Trump turn all this upside down? Well, nilly. Here's NBC political commentator Steve Kornacki today. We did ask this question, Kristen, if one of these cases this year ends in a conviction, a felony conviction for former President Trump, would that change your vote? 45 percent said the next scenario, they vote for Biden, 43 percent for Trump. This is also something the Biden campaign obviously hoping for, although it's a long history in polling of asking folks about hypotheticals <laughs> and them actually reacting a little differently when it actually happens. A little bit of a game changer, but still incredibly close. Go back to what Steve Kornicki said. That last point is crucial. Hypotheticals rarely get you an accurate result in a poll because people tend to do the opposite to what they say they think they should do, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, while some of those surveyed say they would turn on Trump if they were, if he was convicted, the opposite could be true. Now, the more Trump is demonised at the moment, you've seen what happens, the more his support has grown, and a conviction would be the ultimate demonisation. So it could skyrocket in his favour. I'm not so convinced of the former, I'm more convinced of the latter. But do not underestimate the fear and anger Americans hold right now towards the Biden administration over his open border policies. In the NBC poll, Biden's deficit versus Trump on handling immigration and the border, listen to this, is greater than 30 points. That's amazing. It's greater than 30. So they support everything that they hear from Trump, but nothing that they see happening in America right now pushed by the president. They hate what he's doing to the borders by allowing, as occurred in December, 350,000 migrants in at that stage. And on the weekend, that anger manifested itself when thousands of protesters from around the United States, by the way, flocked to a Texas border town to vent over illegal immigration. These were people made up of Trump supporters. There were conservatives. There were religious devotees and Texans who'd simply had enough. 
Now, at the Take Our Border Back Convoy rally in Cumado, vendors sold shirts and flags and hats promoting Trump, and it seemed from the footage that I saw that they were doing a great business. And these were folks with nothing to say good about their current president. I wouldn't have missed this. I've been on... This is horrible what's happening to us. And uh, whatever... I have some ladies over there I met, they drove all the way in from Oregon. This was just a little sign of show of respect for Texas and what they're doing. We just want people to come into our country legally and respect our way of life and the laws and to welcome in. I mean, my grandparents came from Italy and so I mean, you know, we're all immigrants of some sort, but we came in to become American, to love America. Political pundits, certain individuals, certain Groups claiming to be an army of God are coming to our community to spread hate and to spread dissension. And I just, I'm troubled by that because this is not who we are. So we need this to stop. He's not wrong about hate and dissension. That doesn't apply to everyone that comes over the border. It does not. But it has in places in New York where they're now considering kicking some of these migrants out. Uh, that last man saw the fight between Texas and Washington over the border chaos as a civil war conflict. You know, on April the 8th at exactly 1257, this community is going to go dark for four and a half minutes. It's going to be a total solar eclipse. And I was hoping when I heard about this seven years ago, that we that Eagle Pass would be recognized as the first point where you can see the eclipse. But now we're known as this point where a potential uh, civil war might commence. Now, we mentioned the word civil war, but that was about as volatile as this rally became. So much for all the pathetic predictions by some in mainstream media during the week that this could become another violent conservative gathering. It was nothing of the sort. Uh, 15 governors from across the states joined in as well today, including Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who's been aggress aggressively clashing with the president over border troops, over Constantina Wire and floating boy barriers in the Rio Grande. Uh, Reuters reported that while this was all going on in Eagle Pass, Witnesses saw small groups of migrants crossing the border near the town, but they were trapped by Texan-installed concertina wire. If only the state of Texas had ultimate jurisdiction of its own borders, they could actually stop this flow on the southern border of the United States. This is TNT. TNT's Kate Shamarani. I'm of the, the belief that your body can totally, 100% heal itself. If you remove the offending things and you flood your body with what it needs, what do your dogs and your kids do when they get sick? They lie down and sleep, don't they? They don't want to eat. They get great big temperatures and they just want to rest. What, do you think you're a special, special snowflake? You're any different? No, that's you as well. But what do they want to do when you go to the hospital? I've seen it firsthand in the last couple of weeks. They're just gonna serve you rubbish food, wheat, sugar, dairy, animal protein, tea and coffee, 
fluoridated, fluoridated, bromine, water, drugs, pharmaceutical petroleum-based drugs. Kate Shimarani on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are opportunity zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. A hoax about carbon dioxide in the climate has caused a global energy and economic disaster. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The man is not wrong. And ever since we had the United Nations COP28 summit in December, alarmism over what they describe as global boiling has not waned. On Sunday, even Elon Musk, of all people, posted an eight-minute video on X saying that The only action needed to solve climate change is a carbon tax. Good grief. My next guest will discuss this and more. Steve Gorham is Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of four books on energy, climate change and sustainable development with over 100,000 copies in print. Steve's new book, though, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, was published in August 2023. He joins us right now. Steve Gorham, welcome to TNT. Hi, Chris. Great to join you today. Now, let's talk about Elon Musk for a second. I, I must be dreaming this, but I'm nearly sure that a decade ago I heard, and I haven't checked for the comments, but I am even sure that he was very critical and suspicious of the whole, you know, global boiling alarmism. Uh, But that has changed, of course, since he's become one of the government's favoured sons due to Tesla. Do you get the impression that what you may have heard over the weekend was him running a line for the Biden administration because of what he produces? Yeah, he seems to have changed direction a little bit if he's now calling for a carbon tax. Uh, he has been skeptical in the past. And, uh, you know, we uh, we have, uh, he's, uh, Tesla's been a tremendous beneficiary of, of uh, subsidies for electric vehicles. Mm. And not only in the United States, but in many nations around the world. Uh, today, you can get a $7,000 subsidy uh, from an auto dealer, uh, a price cut when you buy a Tesla or another electric vehicle. And if you buy a used one, if, if it is then sold and it's sold again as a used car, you get another subsidy. It's smaller. And if it's sold again, you get another subsidy. <laughs> and we have we have states that are exempting uh, EVs from road tax. And we have states that are subsidizing battery factories. 
I mean, it just is astonishing. I think one guy estimated something like $50,000 in subsidies, and then you got to include the charging as well, something like $50,000 per car in subsidies for electric vehicles. It really is remarkable. So uh, yeah. uh, it, it, we're, we live in a crazy world today, and uh, and a big part of it is EVs. Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, so in many ways, he's got a conflict of interest because he is bene- benefiting from so much uh, government money, taxpayers' money. Um, yes. He has 171 million followers on his X account. So what he posts <laughs> is widely seen. Here's a short part of this eight-minute video he posted on climate change. What I'm going to talk about today is what is needed to address the climate crisis. What actions can we take that, that will accelerate the transition out of the fossil fuel era? And depending on what action we take, we'll, we'll drive the, the carbon number to either extreme or, or moderate levels. I think it's pretty much a given that the two degree C increase will occur. The question is whether it's going to be much more than that, not if there will be a two degree increase. So the, then the question is, so what can you do? I would say whenever you have the opportunity, talk to your politicians, ask them to enact a carbon tax. We have, we have to fix the unpriced externality. I would talk to your friends about it and fight the propaganda from the carbon industry. Wow, Steve. So if you imp- imp- impose a tax on America, you change the temperature of the planet. Wow. Yeah, there, there are just many, many things wrong in what he said. Uh, he's caught up in the ideology of climatism, as I call it, the fear that humans are causing dangerous global warming. And what is proposed is that we all get to net zero by 2050. Uh, we get rid of uh, coal, oil, and natural gas or hydro- hydrocarbon fuels. Uh, the wealthy nations of the world are taking this on, the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and some others. But there is really no evidence that this is going to have the slightest effect on global temperatures. Global temperatures are dominated by natural factors. He's also using the term carbon, which is wrong. Uh, He should be talking about carbon dioxide. Carbon and carbon dioxide are two completely different substances. Carbon dioxide is odorless, uh, invisible. Uh, We all exhale about uh, uh, two pounds a day. Uh, and so uh, uh, there are just many, many things that are wrong, but the world is spending about a trillion dollars a year now to try and affect this transition. But as my book says, this is going to break down and we are seeing some early signs of, of the coming breakdown across the world. <laughs> I want to I want to get to renewables and breaking down in just a second. But in late December, the International Ski Federation urged uh, to cut emissions for fear of the lack of snow. Uh, some claim snow is disappearing due to human caused uh, global warming. What is the reality with all of this stuff? Yeah, well, that, that's flat out wrong as well. Uh, a guy by the name of Dr. David Viner at the uh, uh, Climate Research Unit in East Anglia, England, famously said in the year 2000 that snow is disappearing and that children won't even know what snow is. Uh, but if you, if, and, and by the way, in the United States, we have a number of um, a number of states that are suing the oil companies. Colorado is one because they're, they're charging that uh, snow is disappearing, disappearing from their, their ski areas. But if you look at the actual data, that's not the case. At the Rutgers University in New Jersey, they have a thing called the Global Snow Lab, and they, they uh, plot what is called snow extent, the amount of snow that is on the ground in the fall, the winter, and the spring. And surprisingly, for about the last 40 years, the snow extent has been increasing 
uh, in North America in the fall and in the winter. Uh, it's declining in the spring, but overall it's very stable. And not only in North America, but also the Northern Hemisphere. So there really is, even though we're having a gentle warming, there is no evidence that snow is disappearing. But this is uh, endlessly trumpeted in the media and by many, many people. Um, matter of fact, if you if you get a climate article in the news, there are probably many things wrong with it uh, that are incorrect. Okay, let's pretend that we cut off coal tomorrow. And I noticed that White House Special Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, declared that coal plants should not be allowed anywhere in the world. So if we cut off coal plants tomorrow, Steve, just describe for me what kind of a world we would live in very quickly. Yeah, that's a very, very sad statement. Today, the world gets 35% of its electricity from coal-fired power plants. Uh, but nevertheless, we have a shortage of electricity. There's about 700 million people that don't have access to electricity. Another 2 billion people that have blackouts or brownouts every day or every other day. We have hundreds of hospitals in the poor world without electricity, if you could imagine that. And I like to say, if you have an air conditioner anywhere in the world, uh, you probably use more electricity with that air conditioner alone than about a third of the world's people. So uh, Mr. Kerry's statement that we should get rid of all the coal-fired power plants is, I think it's a little bit like Marie Antoinette, who said for the poor people in the French Revolution, if they don't have food, let them eat cake. Mm. It would be just a disaster for the world to get rid of coal-fired power, and, and there's no way it can be done. And it's ideology which will cause a breakdown, which brings me to your new book. I've got to take a break for news. Just 30 seconds, Steve, and we'll come back and talk about the failure of renewables and where just about every country is headed in the Western world. Steve Gorham, as I mentioned, a great guest on, guest on the program. His new book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, was published in August 2023. We'll continue hearing from him in just a short moment. Let's go to the newsroom, though, on TNT. Time to read some news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with your TNT headlines. New polling out of the US signals a presidency in peril, as incumbent Joe Biden records one of the highest disapproval ratings in American history. Following months of negotiations on a deal to combat illegal immigration, it appears Democratic and Republican senators have finally reached an agreement. And Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been hit with another lengthy jail term, the third such sentence in five days. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. Thank you so much to one of our viewers, Byron, who sent me a message on the chat box on tntradio.live and saying, welcome back to my ears for another week, Chris. Good on you, Byron. And he can't wait for Mark Latham, the uh, independent MP from New South Wales coming up in the program next hour. Steve Gorham, in your recent book, Green Breakdown, you predict that the world is heading for a renewable energy failure. I get the feeling that evangelism and the push towards renewables without proper scrutiny will become one of man's greatest failures. Well, I think so. I do agree. Uh, the push for this energy transition is going to result in four big impacts. One is higher energy prices, and we're seeing that in many places already. Yeah. The second is uh, electricity blackouts. We've seen some of that in the United States. The third is loss of freedom because governments must impose these policies. They say you can't have a gasoline car. 
Uh, you can't have a gas stove. And, and so people aren't going to like that. And then the, the uh, fourth one is we're going to have some uh, energy crises in places like we've had in Europe over the last two years. And just to give you an idea for costs, Australia is an example. Australia, about the year 2000, had amongst the lowest electricity prices in the world. But that, that has risen about twice the rate of inflation over the last two decades as they put in more and more wind. And uh, it, it's amongst the highest now. Uh, California, green California in the United States is now the second state behind Hawaii. Uh, they passed up all of New England. Their prices are, are double any other Western state. And the more wind and solar that people put in, the higher these prices are going to go. Uh, we're also seeing uh, some signs of a breakdown in terms of the EV market. Uh, we are, are seeing a pullback in the United States, a pullback in Europe. Uh, the rental, the big rental company Hertz uh, Rental in the United States uh, committed to buy 100,000 Teslas, and I think they did, but now they've said, well, we're going to sell a third of them back because they're costing us more for insurance. They're costing us more for collisions. And the reason they don't mention is a lot of people just don't want to mess with a, with an EV rental car and charging it when they're trying to get somewhere and, uh, with a rental car. Uh, we have offshore wind in the United States. About half of the companies have pulled out because of the costs, uh, the high costs of uh, interest rates. Uh, they had an onshore auction in the UK and no wind companies bid. So they got to they got to raise the price for that. Uh, Siemens Wind in Germany has just been bailed out by the German government to the tune of 10 billion euros because they were they were bankrupt on on their wind systems. And if you if you look at the Renix index R E N I X X, which is uh, some of the top 30 uh, renewable country uh, companies in the world, that index has been falling for three years in a row now. So we're starting to see uh, some issues. And what's going to happen is people are going to push back. They're going to say, "I want lower, I want low cost, reliable uh, energy and electricity again, uh, and and uh, not this uh, energy transition." The snowball, the domino impact of high energy prices is enormous for manufacturing, for a, a failure in living standards, a drop in living standards, which I, I think everyone in the Western world will feel because of this incredible evangelistic blindness. And we've got a situation where, you know, you talk about energy prices. Let me give you a prime example. And I looked through my tax receipts going back 20 years ago the other day, because I received them from my accountant. I was paying $110 as a family of four for electricity every three months in Australia 20 years ago. I'm paying uh -huh. $840 today. Yeah. And it's going to go much, much higher. Australia, as I understand it, doesn't have any nuclear plants, and they've only got about 6% hydropower. So when they take all of that coal and all of that natural gas and they try and convert it to wind, it's going to get very, very expensive. They're going to have blackouts. And batteries really aren't the answer. Uh, a good rule of thumb for batteries is that they're about, uh, when, you, when you back up for a single day a wind system, if you want to back it up for a single day, you need to install batteries that cost about five times as much as the wind system itself. And then they wear out in half the lifetime. So you're really talking about a 10 times cost adder to try and put in batteries to solve the intermittency of, of wind and solar. Uh, the, the physics just aren't going to allow this transition to occur. And, and transmitting the energy coming from renewables into the grid in Australia will cost approximately 
$100 billion. Now, anything that I see quoted that way, you could probably add another naught because that's usually the way these projections go. But $100 billion just to make that electricity work for the grid, the infinitesimal electricity, that is just madness. And it's not as if you're setting up a network and setting up you know, major wind turbines, et cetera, for the next 100 years, as you say, 15 to 20 years later, you've got to replace them. And the biggest thing about all this is that it's unlikely this is going to have any effect on global temperatures. Correct. <laughs> global temperatures are dominated by uh, natural factors. Water vapor is Earth's dominant greenhouse gas. And most of the carbon dioxide that is put in the atmosphere comes from natural factors, about 20 times as much as comes from Earth's industries. So there's going to come a point in the next two or three decades when we hey when we see you know this isn't doing anything to global temperatures they may even be declining uh, a number of scientists say that we're on that road we'll just have to see what happens when you say in your book you warn of a transnational energy crisis uh, you've kind of already explained it but just just to enunciate that for our viewers well that's what happened in the in the in Europe over the last two or three years. Uh, Europe, the wind didn't blow during 2021 across Europe. It was very low. They burned natural gas all year. And before the Ukraine invasion, the end of, of the year 2021, uh, natural gas prices had gone up by a factor of five. Electricity prices had gone up by a factor of five. And so they started telling people in England, for example, uh, don't shower or shower with a friend. <laughs> Energy bills were, were a couple thousand pounds in the winter. Uh, they imposed a... Uh, 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 temperature levels, how low you could set in, in your indoor buildings in the summer and how high you could set them in the winter, uh, just just all kinds of problems. And, and this basically is a loss of standard of living for the people in Europe. And there are other places like New England in the United States, I think Australia is headed down that road and some others that are going to suffer these same kind of effects. Well, some of these countries, and you mentioned a few of them there, they think that they can supply baseload power. Now, bear in mind, they want to push everything onto the electricity grid, like cars, etc. So they well, think they can supply the current baseload power multiplied by five, which is what some of the experts are saying we will need, and rely solely on wind and sun. Which countries in the world have managed to pull that off, Steve? It's crazy. The, the only countries that the only places that can be net zero are the ones that have a lot of hydropower. Um, like Canada might be able to get close, so Washington State, maybe Brazil, but for everybody else, they won't be able to do it. We have we have three big growth areas. Uh, one, as you mentioned, is is electric vehicles. Another one is electric stoves. Appliances uh, are trying to push on everybody, and the third is artificial intelligence. These data centers are going to three, require three to five times as much electricity as they do today. Yeah. And that's going to be a huge growth area for electricity. So we're just not going to get there. And this thing is all going to break down. See, the thing is, if they could prove to us that renewables would provide baseload power and the baseload power we need five times more than we have at the moment, we could probably wait until that moment when they actually knocked on the door and said, yes, we're ready. But no, they don't do that. They don't have a plan, Steve. They just go, if we demonize fossil fuels loud enough and severely enough and tax the crap out of everyone over fossil fuels, and if we just keep building you know, wind farms and, and solar panel farms, we'll be right. There's no science in this. 
No, there isn't. And and Europe, by the way, is stepping back. Uh, Germany has started 27, restarted 27 coal plants. Yep. Uh, they have uh, built, they are building 25 liquefied natural gas uh, terminals to offload natural gas from the United States and from Qatar uh, because they just can't fill it in with wind and solar. So, so it's just not going to be possible to do what they say it's going to do, but it will raise prices oh. because you have to, in addition to that wind and solar, you got to have all those uh, other, other uh, systems running as a spinning reserve or backup for, for when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Yeah, my $800 will be 1000 in probably two years. Now, at COP28 in Dubai, um, twice-failed yeah. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton told attendees that we are beginning to count and record the deaths that are related to climate, and by far the biggest killer is extreme heat. Now, yeah. it's this alarmism based on no factual evidence that drives people to think that we've got to get rid of CO2. Yeah, well, this is going to be the next big push. You know, they've learned from the COVID crisis when you could look every day online and see the number of deaths everywhere in the world, segmented by country and location, et cetera. So Mrs. Clinton wants to uh, have a daily count of climate deaths. And there was a paper just written two days ago that estimates there's something like 4 million climate deaths since the year 2000, which is just crazy. I mean, he's even he's counting things like diarrheal disease and yes. and uh, heart disease and everything else as, as a climate death. But this is what they're going to try and do. It's not it's not clear, though, that more people are dying because of climate. If you look at uh, famine, famine is down over the last century in this warming era. Uh, by about a, a factor of more than 90%. If you look at the uh, International Disaster Database, uh, deaths from natural natural disasters are down more than 90% yeah. over the last century. Yes. International Disaster Database, uh, deaths from natural, natural disasters are down more than 90% yeah. over the last century. Yes. And when I speak to groups, I ask them, uh, which is better for people, cold or warm uh, weather? And, and everybody gets it right. It's the warm months are better. More people die. There are many, many papers that show that more people die during cold climates, cold cold months than the warm months. So if we get a little bit of warming, we're probably going to have less people die. So despite the fact that Mrs. Clinton wants to count deaths, it's going to be very, very fuzzy. Yeah, it will be. And then we've got a situation with EVs. You mentioned EVs just a, a short time ago. But we've got a yeah. situation with EVs that it's so primitive in the technology that even when it's cold, as it has been in certain regions of America this winter, you can't charge your damn car. No, you can't. There was a big black, uh, black eye in Chicago recently. They had pictures on the news of all these people pushing dead Teslas around at the charging areas and everything else. So there's a, there's a new joke in Chicago about electric vehicles. And the, and, and the joke says that, uh, do you know that 90% of all the electric vehicles ever made are still on the road and the other 10% made it home? So <laughs> Yes, anyway, they've been left on the road. Exactly. And again, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not against EVs. They are penetrating world markets. You know, if you want, if you want a, a, a real snazzy a Tesla, that's great as a second car. If you're driving short distance to work, you could charge at home. Yep. But if you're in a cold climate, if you're in an apartment, you got to run a charging cable over a public walkway. That doesn't work. If you can't afford the cost of the car or the cost of insurance, uh, those aren't aren't good ideas either. So let's let the market do what it needs to do. 
Governments should not be forcing this, think that they, thinking that they can stop the oceans from rising if everybody buys an electric car. That That is modern superstition. Yeah, we're just on the edge of spending trillions and trillions of dollars for no change in the temperature of the planet. How yep. mad and crazy <laughs> is that? I've got to leave leave it there, but breakdown, the green breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure is your book, and we can no doubt get it at Amazon and other yep. um, book uh, avenues. It's fantastic to have you on the program, Steve. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Till the next time. Yeah, fantastic. And hopefully there will be a next time. Steve Gorham, um, the Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. Uh, take in some of those bare facts, and they are bare because at the end of the day, don't believe the evangelism. You've got to deal in facts and science, and the science is all wrong. You don't scrutinise this stuff when you're an evangelistic supporter of it. That's the problem. And the politicians have become exactly that. Got to take a break. We're going to break down and analyse exactly what went on over the weekend in the Middle East. Um, we'll catch up with Shane Healy very shortly on the program. Do not go anywhere. This is TNT. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the northern hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14, and I watched her struggle. But MDA helped her get the best treatments and care, and they also help kids like my buddy Ethan. My name is Ethan, and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. 
This is the Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Now, if you want to get involved in the conversation we're about to have in terms of these retaliatory strikes that occurred over the weekend across the Middle East, by all means, jump on our talkback lines. And uh, if you want to dial in from Canada or the US, it's one 201 From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. But the US military launched an air assault on dozens of sites in Iraq and Syria used by Iranian-backed militias and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard on Friday in what is the opening salvo only of retaliation for the drone strike that killed three US troops. I want to get to Shane Healy to unpack all of this. Shane has worked in the Australian Army as an intelligence officer and trainer and as a private military contractor as well. He was deployed twice to Afghanistan as part of Task Force 66 and when in Australia he was part of the tactical assault group East and West where he was involved in several real-time terrorist incidents. He now works for both government and private firms in the area of threat assessment, often related to both suspects and those convicted of terrorism crimes. Shane Healy, welcome back to TNT. Good afternoon, Chris. All right. The massive barrage of strikes hit more than 85 targets at seven locations, we heard from the White House over the weekend, including command and control headquarters, intelligence centres, rockets and missiles, drone and ammunition storage sites, and other facilities that were connected to the militias or the IRGC's uh, Quds Force, the Guard's uh, expeditionary unit that handles Tehran's relationship with an arming of regional militias. So they made sure they didn't miss, uh, and Biden's saying that this is only, only the beginning. What can you tell us about what actually went on and have they got the right targets? So they have got the right targets for the proportion response they're after right now. If you remember... Part of this will go back to the coming up of the US election because when Donald Trump was president, he took out Soleimani, who was the leader of the Quds Force, and set up the Shia militia groups in Iraq that the US partnered with to defeat ISIS. So they've got to be a little bit careful because they don't want to stir up the fact that some of these were US creations that they've lost control of in the current Middle East context, which is why they know where their command and control centres are and these other targets. But in saying that, Khatib Hezbollah, the side that they're after, know this as well, and they've put out statements saying, we're backing off, fighters don't touch US targets anymore. So at the surface level, it seems to have worked. Okay. They would have known this was coming, maybe not as extensively as it came, but they were given plenty of warning, you know, and I just wonder the effectiveness of these kinds of strikes when you give um, militias the kind of warning that Biden gave them after the drone strike in Jordan. Sometimes in the intelligence realm, you want to tip your hand to watch pattern of life of your enemy. The US with surveillance in Iraq and Syria is phenomenal from both space, their own predator and reaper drones, and humid sources on the ground. So they may have deliberately done this in order to move some people around to see a pattern of life prior to launching attacks. So don't always think that, oh, they gave them warning. It, sometimes it's deliberate to see who's moving where and can we get two for one. 
Okay. They also illustrated over the weekend that they could walk and chew gum at the same time because they got together with Britain and struck 36 Houthi targets in Yemen on Saturday in a second wave of assaults meant to further disable uh, Iran-backed groups that have relentlessly attacked American and international interests in the wake of the war. But Washington once more did not directly target Iran. And just about every statement that's come from the White House over the weekend has mentioned we have not gone into Iran. We have not attacked a target within Iran territory. Why are they so insistent on emphasising that? Has Iran attacked America? It's a proxy war. We're fighting a proxy war, and it's the proxies that are doing the damage and that are receiving it. If the Iranians state launched an attack that's a declaration of war and if you remember the other week we spoke about the difference between title 10 which is a declaration of u.s war by congress and title 50 which is uh, a more covert cia intelligence driven this is all being done under title 50 if a state actor like iran overtly attacks the u.s that goes to congress and it's a declaration of war which iran will not do right I want to talk about the hostages again. Um, how many do you think would still be alive? My um, current understanding from on the ground is over 100, around 110 they're assessing on the ground to still be alive. So 50 have died in captivity. That's um, not confirmed, but that's what they're assessing on the ground, yeah. Taking taking hostages, Shane, is usually a terrorist way to get what they want uh, to bargain. Are they just stupid? Because nothing that they have done in terms of taking hostages has gained them any ground at all. Well, well, uh, there's a number of fronts we've discussed over the weeks. They're winning the the information war. They've had the UN and the International Court call Israel um, war criminals. Yeah. So while they're losing some ground in the tactical space, they're winning at an international and strategic level. And we've seen Hamas um, uh, retake certain areas with an overt presence of police, ministry. So I think that Israel spoke two weeks ago about we've surrounded them and all of a sudden now we're seeing Hamas police and ministers out in the open in, in Gaza. So um, they're getting what they want. I asked you this question last week on the program. I'll ask it again. Have we got any evidence that Israeli forces have been able to extract hostages from the tunnels that they have searched? No, and they would advertise that as soon as they did. You get you get one in any hostage rescue attempt, you get one guarded. So they're going to look for the biggest bang of their buck. They're not just going to go after an individual. They're going to look for a concerted uh, uh, rally point. And Hamas are going to keep those hostages separate, separate. Because again, we've discussed this for weeks. It's leverage, leverage, leverage. You know, and when those three hostages did escape and tried to surrender, and the Israelis accidentally killed them, that looked terrible for the IDF. So they're they're not in a central location. They're dispersed in a number of a large number of um, tunnels, and you know we're assessing at this stage that. Uh, the IDF and the intelligence apparatus only know of about 30% of the tunnels anyway. This is why they haven't been able to locate and go after some of the hostages. 30% of the tunnels only. Yeah, that's the assessments coming out of the area, yeah. Now, you mentioned 
just briefly there um, that despite Israel's, you know, air and ground campaign, four residents and senior officials in the militant group Hamas told AP over the weekend it has begun to resurface in areas where Israel withdrew the bulk of its forces a month ago, deploying police officers and making salary payments to some of its civil servants in Gaza City. That's confounds me completely. Police officers were deployed near police headquarters and other government offices, including near Shifa Hospital. It shows how resilient these underground rats are, doesn't it? If you remember when we first started talking and I said to you, going into a subterranean complex urban operation is the hardest warfare you'll ever do. Like I was in the Battle of Fallujah and assisted in the Battle of Mosul and it's inch by inch, street by street, house by house, and then you add tunnels into it and and uh, residents and then moving residents around. I said from the start, this is the way it was going to go. Just amazing, you know. Um, so Israel can't be everywhere in Gaza City. I don't know how they worked that out. So we could see more uh, of Hamas re-establishing in areas of Gaza City from here, no doubt. I'll guarantee it. Yep, and they'll do it and get it out as quick as possible. It may only be for an hour that they show it. They may get some Hamas police, they do some payments, they get a show of force because Israel are watching and then all of a sudden they get that out through the news media and then they take it away again and Israel come flying in looking for them. So it could be a bit of a cat and mouse game because, again, the lead of this is the information operation warfare. Okay, I want to go to Australia very quickly. And a major story breaking in Australia about counterterrorism police, how they encouraged an autistic 13-year-old boy in his fixation on Islamic State in an undercover operation after his parents sought help from the authorities. So his parents were right across it. The boy, given the pseudonym Thomas Carrick, was later charged with terror offences after an undercover officer fed his fixation and doomed his rehabilitation possibility, according to what the Victorian Children's Court found. Now, is this just a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, or are the AFP just stupid? No, no. And I, if you recall two weeks ago, I actually mentioned this case. I said there was a young boy where the AFP had planted. It's not the only one. There are a number of cases in Melbourne, Victoria, that the AFP have planted undercovers in there in order to facilitate an arrest and then a conviction. You know, the Hanifi Hollis matter or the coloured Tamsa matter or two others. Um, I have uh, inside knowledge on all of these matters, so I've got to be a little bit careful what I say. But this one in particular infuriates me because the parents did what, what they're told to do, seek help. You have intervention. There yep. are experts out there. Someone like Peter Logue would have gone in, who is an expert in, and he's named in this matter as an expert witness, could have conducted intervention rehabilitation of this young boy Instead, the AFP planted an undercover agent in order to feed him. He, he's autistic, so he doesn't get it anyway. Feed him information so they can get a conviction of a 13-year-old boy. It is disgusting, and there should be a Royal Commission about this. What a scalp to be proud of. They've got nothing to be proud of, the AFP, in this regard. No, it's disgusting. And now, I want to have it out there. Like, my moniker is the terrorist hunter. I've been hunting... Islamic terrorist and and the Taliban for most of my adult life. And if I thought that there was an adult in Australia that was a threat to the Australian public, I'd be the first person to say it. 
So that's why I'm so angry at this. There was a true chance of intervention of a young autistic boy, mm. and instead they created a criminal, which is disgusting because there are criminals out there. Yeah. There'll be more to be uh, had and covered on this one, no doubt. We'll keep us in touch on that, Shane. That would be terrific. Thank you very much for unpacking what was a, a remarkable uh, development over the weekend. Thanks again. Anytime, Chris. Appreciate it. Shane Healy, who we catch up with regularly, depending on what happens in the Middle East. Must take a break for news. We'll do that. This is Chris Smith on TNT. TNT.